Hello, and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm talking to Andrew Roberts, but in case you're disconcerted by the slightly different sound quality of the recording, that's because this event was recorded in front of a live audience at Daunt's Bookshop in Maribyrn, London. Hello everybody and welcome. It's a great, great privilege to be here chairing Andrew. Andrew, I'd like to start by asking the slightly impolite, but I'm afraid very, very obvious question, which is that by your own count, there have been something like a thousand books written on Winston Churchill. A thousand Churchill. and nine. A thousand and nine. <laughs> Sorry, ever the historian with your precision. So why do we need another one? What is there that's new to say? Well, this was something that was a bit nerve-wracking to me when I signed the contract, as you can imagine, four years ago. But very fortunately, through entirely through serendipity and luck, rather than by archival genius, I was very fortunate that lots of new sources came together at exactly the right time. The Churchill Archives at Cambridge already have two and a half million sets of documents, but 41 people started sending in their papers since the last big biography of Churchill was published. And at the same time, I was able to use the verbatim War Cabinet documents, which I had discovered when I was writing my book, Masters and Commanders. There was a set of three volumes of Ivan Maisky's diaries, the diaries of the Soviet uh, minister to London between 1932 and 43, And there was also a, a, a great and extremely lucky coup, as far as I was concerned, <coughs> King George VI diaries, which uh, the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to be able to use. And the King and Churchill didn't start off very well. Churchill had, of course, supported his elder brother during the abdication crisis, and the King had been very much in favour of appeasement, totally supported Neville Chamberlain. So, so politically and personally, they weren't necessarily going to get on, but very quickly they did, and they established... Tuesday lunchtime meetings where the uh, servants were sent away and they served themselves from the side table and they talked about everything. And, the, and Churchill trusted the king with every secret. He trusted him with ultra, he trusted him with the nuclear secrets and everything else. And they got on to the point that Winston Churchill was actually the only one of the king's four prime ministers to be uh, called by his Christian name. And uh, the king actually writes of the two men as, as being friends. And so the great thing was that he, after their Tuesday lunchtime meetings, wrote down everything Churchill said. So this book is packed with new quotations from Churchill, new stories and anecdotes and, and gags and things that uh, Churchill said, which have never been in any, any Churchill biography uh, before. And I also was tremendously lucky in getting the love letters of Pamela Harriman. Not the ones from Pamela Harriman, but the many, many, many more ones to uh, <laughs> Pamela Harriman, who, of course, was uh, Randolph Churchill's wife at the, uh, at the time of the Second World War. But nonetheless, that didn't stop her from pursuing affairs with Avril Harriman, Ed Murrow, Sir Charles Portal, the head of the RAF, General Kevin Anderson, <laughs> another unnamed, uh, per, uh, unnamed American uh, general. In fact, she had three lovers writing to her from the Yalta Conference. Uh, and, and also someone called Jerry, and we don't know who, who, who Jerry is. We, um, so all in all, although I had private access to, to her, her papers, 
Lots of people also have private access to her. Um, and these have also proved very, very lucky. So when Pug Ismay, Churchill's great chief of staff during the war, told Eisenhower in 1960 that it would be impossible to write a comprehensive life of Churchill until the year 2010. I agree with that, because there were so many more bits of the jigsaw that needed to fit together. But luckily, and I say, as I admit, I'm the first person to win, it's, it's luck as far as I'm concerned, they, they, are, they have now fitted together. Can I ask a little more about, so about your subtitle? Because you call it Walking with Destiny, and Churchill, age 16, as you describe in the book, sort of told a schoolmate, you know, the country's going to be invaded and I'm going to save Britain from invasion and the empire and play a very important part in history. I mean, anybody else with that sort of sense of destiny we'd regard as completely deranged, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes, we, yes, absolutely. No, we'd, we'd be right to. Yes, he said, there will be great struggles, there will be terrible upheavals, it will fall to me to, to save London and to save the country and to save the empire. And as, as you say, what Merlin Evans, who was also 16 at the time, what he thought of it, uh, we, don't, we don't know. But um, half a century later, all of those things actually happened. And his sense of destiny was absolutely epicentral to his self-confidence and his sheer belief that he was specially saved for something. He said, over me beat invisible wings. And he's talking not about... He wasn't a Christian uh, or anything like that. He didn't believe that Christ was the saviour. In all of his speeches, his amazing speeches, 5.2 million words, and his, and his writings, 6.1 million words, he doesn't mention Jesus Christ at all in any of them. But he does believe that there is an almighty whose primary purpose, it seems to me, was to take care of Winston Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> to what extent do you think I mean, we'll, we'll go into the sort of closer detail in a moment, but was his sort of meeting with destiny a matter of pure luck? I mean, had the world not been on the brink of essentially coming to an end on his watch, would he have been a sort of, you know, a museum piece or an antiquated blusterer or someone who was out of time? Because he was prophesying disaster from, as you say, a very early age. And it just so happens that he was right on on the spot when it happened. And, well, he wasn't really on the spot because, of course, he'd been 10 years in the wilderness saying it was, uh, out of office, saying it was going to happen. And, yes, uh, if, if he'd been wrong about Adolf Hitler, he would, he'd, he'd be an absurd character, ludicrous figure, really, which is the kind of figure that the appeasers tried to make him out to be anyway. There was a, uh, a very strong whips office of the national government in the 1930s very much needed to make Churchill out to be a has-been, to be a sort of musical turn, to be somebody who was um, uh, who used grandiloquent but old-fashioned English to uh, warn against the danger that didn't exist. But the great thing was that he, he had spotted the malevolence of Hitler and the Nazis early on, partly because he was a Philo-Semite, um, from early age, which of course many people in his class and background were, were not. Partly because he really understood about history, he'd written his biography of the great Duke of Marlborough, his ancestor, who had, uh, had saved Britain from Louis XIV's domination of Europe in the uh, War of Austria's succession. And partly because he had seen fanaticism really up close 
he'd seen his best friend in the northwest frontier get sliced to pieces on a stretcher by uh, Pathan tribesmen. He'd seen dervishes in the Sudanese campaign, in the, in the charge at Omdurman, the last great cavalry charge of the British Empire, and, uh, and the way they were actuated by Islamic fundamentalist uh, fanaticism. And this was a world away from the kind of background that Neville Chamberlain in Birmingham or Ramsay MacDonald or Stanley Baldwin or frankly any of the other frontline politicians had, uh, had, had started their, um, their careers. Did you, I mean, as you describe, he's, he did see action. I mean, we think of him now apocryphally or, or, or sort of the classical image of Churchill is this kind of elderly, rotund fellow in a kind of romper suit with a bottle of champagne and a cigar. But as a young man... of course, you've read the first six chapters of my book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he had tremendous physical courage, didn't he? Amazing physical courage. And, and of course, you, you look at the loss of life on the occasions when he grabbed his opportunities. In the cavalry charge that I was telling you about earlier, there were 25% killed or wounded from his regiment. When in the train ambush that took place during the Boer War in South Africa, 32% killed or wounded. He, he escaped from his South African prisoner of war camp in, uh, in Pretoria a, uh, a month later, and they, the, the Boers, of course, would have shot him if they'd, uh, if they'd captured him, probably would have shot him if they captured him. Uh, certainly that was the, uh, the risk he was taking. But the, the sheer animal, raw courage of this man physical courage, also continues all the way through the First World War where he goes for 30 times into no man's land. He didn't need to do that. He was Lieutenant Colonel. He could have sat back in battalion headquarters if he wanted to, but he didn't. He got so close to the German lines he could actually hear the Germans speaking in their trenches. And so by the time you get to the Second World War, and this is, this, is, this is a throwback really to this remark, this wonderful statement that he makes about himself in the war memoirs in 1948, where he says, speaking of the day he became Prime Minister, that all my past life has been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. It's the sentence before the, the part about, I, I felt as if I were walking with destiny. And that is so true with Churchill, because you find, by the Second World War, that he goes up onto the uh, air ministry roof to watch air raids during the Blitz. The king begs him not to, but he continues to, uh, to do it. He was immensely brave in undertaking 120,000 miles of travels, of journeys, outside the United Kingdom when he was Prime Minister in those five years from Dunkirk to the fall of Berlin. And these were very often in, uh, in freezing cold, unpressurised cabins, wrapped up in a, in a um, great coat. Uh, one moment uh, his plane was hit by lightning over the Atlantic and they feared that the instrumentation was all going to go wrong. An awful lot, especially in the Western Desert and over France, in the time of the fall of France, they were uh, within easy distance of the Luftwaffe. And the sheer raw animal courage of this man can only be equated to the moral courage that he also showed again and again, and especially, of course, during the wilderness years. How do you interpret that? Courage. I mean, the sort of risks he took. Was that a case of his, of being sensing that he was protected by God and by destiny, and that, or was it a sense that his ego was so important to him 
that he was prepared to take risks in order to be a great man, or was he proving himself to his father, as is another possible theme in your book? How does, how does that pan out, do you think? Psychologically, it is, it is fascinating. There's very much, because, of course, he was a soldier, and he was a subaltern on the northwest frontier, and he took unnecessary risks there, not least by buying a grey, and he rode around on a grey, which was, a, which was a, you know, almost inviting Athen bullet. But he knew in his early years, and he didn't think he was ever going to live long, it's extraordinary how many of his family, his uncles and aunts, died very young. You know, some in, in childhood, few in their 40s, very few made 60. And his father, of course, died at 45. And so Churchill didn't, he, he felt he didn't have long to live, and he had to make his name as, as, as much as possible. And the way to do that was to be obviously and immensely brave early on. And so that's one explanation. The other, as you alluded to, his relationship with his father, which was, to all intents and purposes, terrible. I mean, in the modern world, you wouldn't put up with it for a minute, this disdainful, aloof man, Lord Randolph Churchill, who, who never really showed any love and affection for his son and thought that his son was a, was a useless failure. And yet Churchill desperately strove to impress his father, even after his father had died. And he was constantly bringing up his father in conversation. He adopted his father's pose when speaking. He adopted all of his father's political principles and views. As soon as he got any money, which he did when he was 71 years old, he bought racehorses and he kitted them out in his father's uh, racing colours. He talked about his father endlessly and, and late in life he had a very strange moment where he believed he'd seen his father's ghost and wrote a short story about, uh, about the conversation he had with his father in which his father never learns that he had won the Second World War. It's a very interesting psychological connection. And so Churchill was, he, as I say, he was a fantastically emotional figure. There are 50 times during the Second World War where he bursts into tears. And you have to see him, therefore, I think, in terms of a Regency romantic rather than a Victorian stiff-upper-lip aristocrat. When I say Regency romantic, I mean a Regency romantic aristocrat. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he, he spent money uh, like a drunken sailor on shore leave. Um, but there was this amazing, uh, uh, amazing sense of him just not caring about what anybody else thought of him. Partly that was because he was the grandson of the Duke at a time when Dukes were Dukes, but also because he had this, uh, this extraordinary sense of, of personal destiny, and hence the subtitle of the book. How much do you think you'd see him as a person of principle, and how much in his character was there of opportunism and of making it up as he goes along? And of, you know, I'm thinking particularly after you know, the Norway debacle in the first years of the war. Yes. You know, he's sort of rather outmaneuvered Chamberlain. Yes, oh no, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the Norway, to take that as a particular incident, the Norway disaster was much more his fault. He was First Lord of the Admiralty and it was an overwhelmingly naval operation and he was made Minister of Coordination and Defence. So he was, as far as the day-to-day -day aspects of that campaign was concerned, he was far more responsible than Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister. However, what everybody did appreciate was that one of the reasons that we did so badly at the beginning of the Second World War is that we were not fully armed. And the 
person, the only person who said that we needed to be fully armed, and had been Winston Churchill for the previous five years. So he couldn't really be criticised for the defeat of an operation in which there weren't enough men and ships and planes and so on, considering he had spent five years demanding that, uh, that there should be more. As far as the general assumption that he was the most terrible opportunist and would be willing to intrigue and, and do anything for his personal advancement is concerned, actually there is a central thread of a political philosophy through Churchill's life, which is what he called Tory democracy which he got from his father, and his father got it from Benjamin Disraeli. And it's about assertive foreign policy abroad and imperialism and social reform at home. It's a broad and, and, uh, and wide-ranging thing that allows you to get away with quite a lot. But it does also mean that when he joined the Liberal Party in 1904 and didn't come back to the Conservatives until 1925, Actually, that was because he left because the Conservatives had dumped free trade as a political policy, whereas he stuck to it. So he was able to argue that it wasn't him who was changing parties so much as his parties who were uh, changing their, their principles, and he kept his principles intact. And I think there is quite a lot to say that that's true, apart from, of course, as I say, the concept of Tory democracy is a sufficiently wide one to allow an awful lot of bobbing and weaving. <laughs> I was going to ask, I mean, to one of the, I think, modern criticisms of Churchill is, you know, how do we square the great defender of liberty and democracy with the man who opposed women's suffrage, who was very keen to repress any sort of Indian self-rule or self-government? I mean, you know, the imperialist and the, as it were, anti-German imperialist, how are those two sides of him compatible? The, uh, with regard to women, women's suffrage, he very quickly and, and, and stupidly, really, put himself on the wrong side of history by supporting women's suffrage right at the beginning and then turning against it as soon as the suffragettes adopted radical tactics because he thought that that would mean that the Liberal government was being pushed by an aggressive and sometimes violent policy into changing the Constitution. He also recognised that women's suffrage was something that was likely to benefit the Conservative Party much more than the Liberal Party. This was when he was a, a Liberal. And in fact, he was right. The 1955, 1974 and one other election would not have been won by the Conservatives if... Sorry, 1970 election would not have been won by the Conservatives had it not been for a female suffrage. So... And there's no Labour no victory that was won by, um, by female suffrage. So there was a sense that he had sort of boxed himself into a corner. And once he was there, he, he, he didn't uh, work out a way of coming back. And women's suffrage is, along with many other aspects of Winston Churchill, the return to the gold standard, the abdication crisis, as I mentioned earlier, and several others, a classic example of him getting it wrong, making a mistake. And he told his wife, Clementine, I would have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. The great thing from these uh, mistakes, however, is that he did learn from them. The Dardanelles campaign, uh, the debacle over the Dardanelles, for example, probably the greatest example, taught him not to overrule the chiefs of staff during the Second World War, which he didn't do on any occasion during the whole of the Second World War. And he learned other things, and very quickly, of course, he also learned with regard to female suffrage that it was absolutely vital to, um, to try to get women to vote Tory after 1925. 
the imperialism thing, though, would it yes, be anachronistic sorry, to describe him as a racist, for instance? It would be an anachronistic because we today know that it's completely absurd and obscene to think of races in different hierarchies. But it seemed back in the immediate post-Darwin period as a scientific fact. And you see people on the left, like George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells and Beatrice Webb, let alone um, Karl Marx, all ascribing to this theory, which today, since the 1940s and 50s and the breakthroughs and the DNA and the rest, to be utterly ludicrous that there should be, that, that, that some people, because they're white, are in, in any way superior to others. And yet, in those days, that is what people across the board thought. And so it is anachronistic and sort of unhistorical to think that Winston Churchill should in some way be entirely different from, uh, from that. It's, it's like expecting Oliver Cromwell to support the concepts of socialised medicine and the NHS. <laughs> Do you think if he hadn't had the concept of the, the great virtue and nobility and strength of the you know, Anglo-Saxon peoples as against you know, the, the, the Hun, he would have had the fire in his belly to fight the Second World War in the way he did at all? Uh, uh, well, you see, to what extent is, is Nash, a sense of national superiority, of his belief that the, um, the British people were inherently superior to the Germans, the French, the Italians and so on, an, an integral part of also the, the racial theory. Because if there's a hierarchy of coloured races, isn't there also, as far as he's concerned, a hierarchy of white races? And, uh, and he did believe in that. And you see in June 1940 an extraordinary meeting at Tours, the prefecture in, in Tours, where the French government had had to, uh, had to retreat, had to evacuate uh, Paris. Actually, Churchill didn't think they should evacuate Paris. He thought they should fight street by street, but the French government were not going to do that. But when they got down to Tours, he flew over on the 13th of June 1940 to meet with uh, Paul Renault, the French Prime Minister, Marshal Pétain and General Végon, the French Commander-in-Chief, boycotted the meeting. They didn't even turn up. And at that meeting, Churchill said, "I, I know the British people. I can tell the British people, however bad the situation is, I can, I can tell them and they will, they will accept it. And the British people are not going to collapse in the same way that everybody else in the, on the continent has collapsed. We are going to, we're going to fight back, we will win France back, and we will win back your honour. But you must not make peace with the Germans, you mustn't break the agreement not to make a separate peace. Paul Renault himself didn't, to his eternal honour, but obviously Etan and Bacon did. So, yes, there was this sense of national sort of splendour, and that came also from his, from his historical background, his books on Marlborough and so on. And it was something which we might easily be able to criticise as you know, politically incorrect nowadays. However, in 1940 and 1941, it was invaluable. The speeches that he made telling the British people that they were different and they were better were absolutely invaluable in winning that war. You know, I was asking, there's a couple of things that fascinated me in your book that you debunk, or you know, sometimes almost in passing, some of the things that, well, at least I thought I knew about Winston Churchill. I thought I knew that he was a depressive. I thought I knew that he was, if not an alcoholic, at least a, you know, someone with a serious penchant for the drink. You know, I thought he'd been in favour of you know, gassing 
unruly natives. Can you talk a bit about some of these myths that have grown up? Well, the gassing of the unruly natives is actually, if you go to the original papers and read the entire sentence rather than the sentence that's taken out of context and stuck in the, on the internet everywhere, is he, was, he was in favour of using tear gas. That was the gas. It was called lacrimatory gas. So, you know, it's not, um, it's not mustard gas. It's not uh, phosgene or any of the gases that were being used in the, uh, in the Great War in order to try and kill people. It was the same kind of gas that the French riot police will use, you know, quite easily on a, on a Saturday night on a football ground. As far as his depression was concerned, he, he used the phrase black dog once in a letter to his wife in 1911, which was also used, by the way, by Edwardian matrons and nannies to explain their unruly, uh, their unruly children. There is no moment during the Second World War where he is so incapacitated by this so-called depression that he's not able to take decisions to sit in cabinet and, and chair the war cabinet and so on, which uh, true depression, let alone manic depression, can prevent you from being able to execute that kind of executive set of decisions. The, the moments when he gets depressed such as the fall of Singapore in February 1942 or the fall of Tobruk in June 1942, comes when, when anyone would be depressed. If you, were, if you were Prime Minister, you would be depressed by those terrible you know, moments in, in the campaigns. As far as the drinking is concerned, yeah, he drank an enormous amount. Uh, there's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. He would uh, drink champagne at lunch pretty much every day of the war. He would then have some white wine. He would then have a glass or maybe two glasses of brandy. And then during the afternoon and evening, specifically the evening, he would keep his blood alcohol level pretty much level with whiskies and sodas through the small amounts of whiskey, a lot of soda. And his private secretary is new to exactly how to keep the level at the same, same level. But he had an ox-like constitution. And T.P. Scott said that Winston Churchill couldn't have been an alcoholic because no alcoholic could have drunk that much. <laughs> <laughs> Just to add, there is, no, there is only one single occasion in the whole 2,194 days of the Second World War when the people around him thought that he was drunk. And, uh, and they ignored the decisions that were taken that night by the Defence Committee and they revisited it all the next morning, and, and in the same light of day, many of the decisions weren't taken. So it was, you know, nobody, nobody was ever damaged by the fact that Churchill, on one day, imagine the pressures, ladies and gentlemen, on Winston Churchill during the Second World War. There's only one day he got drunk. Finally, I just would like to ask a bit about his oratory and his rhetoric, because it's a sub- subject dear to my own heart. How much do you think his oratory sort of fitted the moment? And how much was it a sort of fixed piece of fixed weaponry that, that hit the right, the right time in history? Yes, a, a very good question. Sam, of course, has written a book on, on rhetoric. And, and Winston Churchill, in 1897, when he was a young man, therefore, 23, wrote an article called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric, in which he sets out the five things that a public speaker should do in order to win the, the hearts of his listeners. And this is before, this is the age of 23, it's before he's actually given a single speech in public himself. He's worked out from all his reading, he was an immense autodidact, you know, totally self-taught. He had to be because he went to Harrow. 
um, why he had this, um, how he had this, this sort of A, B, C, D, and E rules for, for rhetoric. And he also had a fantastic and extraordinary photographic memory, but also a phonographic memory, where he could hear cadences of poetry and songs and so on in his, in his mind. So he, and he always dictated his speeches. He'd walk backwards and forwards, and uh, it was very difficult for some of his secretaries, owing to the fact that he mumbled sometimes, had a cigar in his mouth, and was pointing in the other direction, walking away in the other direction. <laughs> and so they nonetheless had to try to work out what he was saying. And this extraordinary sense that he had of knowing what his listeners wanted to hear. And one of the reasons was just an extraordinary number of public speaking speeches that he gave. He started soon after that writing that uh, article. And by the time he became uh, Prime Minister 42 years later, he had given tens of thousands of speeches. He went all over the country as a, as a young MP and as a junior minister. And they are the... These speeches, he never repeated himself. He wrote all the speeches himself, which no politician, no senior politician does nowadays. Wrote the first draft of every speech as well as all the others. He did himself. It was an extraordinary amount of time that he dedicated to that. So by the outbreak of the Second World War, certainly by the time he became Prime Minister in May 1940, all his past life genuinely had been a preparation for this hour and, and for this trial. And did, did he improvise well? Because I think there's an F.E. Smith joke where he says, you know, Winston spent the best part of his life writing impromptu speeches. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't improvise. He tried not to improvise at all. He was chaotic in terms of the fact that he was always late for everything. And so sometimes uh, he had actually started a speech in the House of Commons and his, his uh, secretaries had been typing, uh, had been taking them down in the car and typing them up in the office and actually were handing him the speech, the speech, uh, and the, the psalm form, as he called it, of the speeches, after he'd begun the speech. So, so you know, there was a sense that he didn't know how he was going to end the speech before it, uh, before it came to it. But he didn't like, he never liked uh, speaking on the unpinioned wing, as he called it. So, so he didn't improvise. And he would change. You go to Churchill College archives, and they will show you the way in which he was, uh, he was scribbling over and changing the words of his speech right the way up to the very last, uh, last minute. But what he created, and one thinks of these incredible speeches, he, he had some rules. One of them, of course, was to use short words, uh, short, mainly Anglo-Saxon words, ones that he, he knew would, would stir the, the hearts of his listeners. A classic example being the 167 words in the paragraph of the We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech, which ends, which has, we shall fight with great confidence in the air, and we shall never surrender, of course, is the, is the final line. And in that paragraph, every single word comes from the Old English, except two. Confidence is Latin, and surrender is French. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Adrian, you've got to let me know. You've got to get it out of it. I think that there's no way of topping that. Um, <laughs> thank you very Andrew, much. You were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. Um, very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.